Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 1st. Not August the 1st. It's October the 1st. I get that one wrong. October the 1st from a very sunny optimistic San Francisco. Unfortunately, though, of course, the news isn't very good. Uh, it might be sunny outside, but everywhere else, uh, the shadows of death are affecting us. Now, the Times reports that 700,000 Americans, oh, it's close to 700,000 Americans have lost their life because of the coronavirus pandemic and globally the number is now up to almost 5 million almost 240 million have um, have caught the virus so things are rather gloomy especially if you've departed these people these 5 million people have quite literally vanished from the earth um, my guest today on the show has a new book called the vanishing it's not a book about covid but she begins in paris um, in a rather melancholic mood. Uh, the book is about the vanishing of, um, of Christian communities in the Middle East. Uh, uh, she's quite a writer and quite a person. Uh, she's almost, uh, she could almost be a fictional character out of a novel, but she isn't. She's a world-famous reporter and writer. Uh, her name is uh, Janine uh, uh, Giovanni. She's talking to us from uh, Manhattan, her home today. Uh, Janine, uh, La Peste, as you say at the beginning of your book, cast a terrible shadow over this book, um, over this narrative of the, the vanishing of Christian communities in the Middle East. Uh, connect the two up. Connect right. COVID and this catastrophe, this, this great tragedy of the, the disappearance of, of Christian communities in the Middle East. Oh, I will. And Andrew, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. And hello, everyone. Um, so I, I've been working in the Middle East um, and the region for, for more than three decades. Um, and during the time of Saddam Hussein, I became aware of the, the small but extremely important Christian community in Iraq. Um, and of course, these are the direct descendants of the prophets, um, of the apostles who went to from, from the Holy Land um, to what is now modern day Iraq to preach and to, to gather more, um, more disciples and to, to bear witness. And these people um, were, were, were then, and I'm talking about this is before the Iraqi invasion in 2003, knew that they, they were desperately under threat that their, their ancient communities, their ancient ways of life were, were going to disappear. And that was because at that point, they saw the American invasion coming. They were terrified. Um, they had managed to live in these small communities. And mainly, you know, Iraq, for instance, is, um, is largely Sunni, Shia, Muslim, and, and many other minorities, but they constitute the majority. It's a majority Muslim country. And I began to spend time with them. The more time I spent with them, the more I was absolutely fascinated by their way of life. Um, I grew up as a Catholic. I went to Catholic school. Um, and I do have a very deep faith, um, which comes from having been a war reporter for, for 
three decades and managing to stay alive in some of the most um, dangerous situations on earth. Anyway, I will get to your question linking it to, to La Peste, to the to COVID, the plague. Um, but I then, as the years went on and I spent more and more time in, in other parts of the Middle East, Syria during the Syrian war, um, where there's a substantial Christian population, the Gaza Strip, believe it or not, um, which had been entirely Christian until the fourth century, has still has a tiny 800 Christians living there. And I also decided to focus on Egypt, the Copts of Egypt, because these people are in, in some places like Egypt discriminated against, but in, um, in Syria and Iraq and Gaza actively endangered, meaning that in a hundred years, they might no longer be on this earth in their ancestral lands. Um, and that is because of the rise of groups such as the Islamic State who tried to wipe them off the face of the earth entirely, climate change, economics. Um, so I began writing this, I'd say about five years ago and researching it very carefully, meaning going and spending a lot of time with these people in the region. And when I actually sat down to write, um, COVID then hit and it happened that I went to Paris where I have spent the past 16 years raising my son, who is French, and um, but I had gone to drop him off for school break on March 12th um, of last year. And um, no, sorry, a 20, when did COVID start? 2020, 2020? Yeah, it was, yeah, it, it, it seems so, like longer than last year, but it was last it year. It seems like a lifetime. Um, so I dropped him off and literally I was gonna turn around and get back on the plane. I dropped him off to see his dad and uh, President Macron went on the, the news the next day saying, nous sommes en guerre, we are at war. And almost immediately Paris, emptied. People fled to, um, a lot of French people share family homes and in the countryside, so they just took off. I felt like it was 1941 and and um, the occupation of Paris, um, suddenly to get food, and I'm sure you experienced this, all of you, wherever you were, I had to queue up um, to get you know macaroni at the local shop, and it was, the shelves were empty. Um, one of the, one of my most bleakest moments was looking across the street at the little kind of shop that used to stay open 24 hours and gave me great comfort because the guy who ran it was always there. And he was packing up his shop to flee to Algeria where he was from. And suddenly everything was closed down except for the chemists, uh, the pharmacies, sure. the supermarkets, some supermarkets and doctors. And, and what I liked about the book, The Vanishing is it's a book in many ways about memory or the death of memory. You start with a quote from perhaps the greatest writer on memory, certainly of the 20th century, Siebold, um, and the last remnants, memory destroys. Um, and, and it's not just a book about memorializing these last Christian communities in the Middle East, which you do beautifully, but it's also a book about your own memories. Um, you spend some time in the church of Saint-Saint-East, uh, which is the second largest uh, church in Paris. And you write in a very uh, moving way about the death of your brother. How, um, how did COVID and the writing of this book bring out your memories and your own religiosity, which is 
in some ways equally cultural or historical as uh, ecclesiastic or theological? Yes, definitely. Um, well, for me, I mean, again, in war zones for, for many, many years and having spent, you know, a good portion of my life being frightened um, of dying. But, but also um, when you're in very, very, I mean, I've, I've been in active war zones of the siege of Sarajevo, Chechnya, Iraq, Afghanistan, everything basically. And I've had moments, I've had mock executions where soldiers held, held a gun to my head. I've had um, kidnappings. I've had, you know, every, you name it. Um, I've been under, you know, in cities under siege. And when you, when you are confronted like that with your own mortality, um, you you realize or that there's something else. Um, there's something more. There's something higher. As and you uh, you quote your father, who um, I don't know if this is his actual phrase, but he used to remind you when you were a young child that there are no atheists in the foxhole. Absolutely. I mean, and this just is saying that when you're really confronted with with true, true, true fear or the possibility that you might die, people start to pray. And whether or not it's your God is Allah or Buddha or uh, your yoga mat, it, it doesn't really matter. I think that in some way we turn at our very, at our most vulnerable, our most lonely, our most desperate, when we have those hours, which we all have, um, you know, at four in the morning when we're riddled with anxiety or fear, um, we turn to our God and in whatever form our God is. And in, in my, in my case, I was brought up as a Catholic. I went to, you know, strict Catholic schools, which made me like many people turn against organized religion, but I always remain deeply, deeply spiritual because I've seen so much evil in the world. I've seen so many war crimes. I've seen so much injustice. I've seen people that have been horribly, horribly tortured, beaten, villages burnt down. So in many ways, I, I needed this for my own, for my own sanity. Um, it brought out the, uh, the Hail Mary in you, didn't it? Um, <laughs> it did. Yes. I mean, I'm a great, I'm a great believer that the rosary, which is, you know, I come from a long line of um, Italian women who pray the rosary and the rosary, what I realized is just a meditation um, it is just a repetitive, the same if you travel through the Middle East and you see men with prayer beads or other part, or parts of Asia, you know, you see people have their, their talisman or whatever, and the chanting and the meditation. And very similar if you go to a traditional mass, um, whether it's Episcopalian or there is the, the, the ritual of chanting and it's a, it's a calming thing. So the rosary and the Hail Mary is is repetitive. Um, you, can't, I mean, you can't get it out of yourself. Uh, it, it, reading your book reminds me, I don't know if you've seen the Bruce Springsteen show live or the Broadway show. I wish, I wish. Uh, anyway, it's a wonderful show and uh, he's like you. I think he grew up as a rebel in a Catholic, yes. you know, Italian, uh, Irish yeah. family. And then I guess he's a little bit more tolerant now. But at the end of the, the, the show, in the narrative, he grew up with this tree. It was his favorite tree. And then he returns to where he grew up Freetown, New Jersey, and the tree's being cut down, and he tells himself a Hail Mary. It sort of just pops out naturally, like you in the streets of Paris. So it's interesting. So, so Janine, uh, enough about yourself and your family, although that's very interesting. Let's go back to the Middle East. Mm -hmm. You can kill communities, but you can't kill maps. And you begin um, 
the book, well, the book begins with three maps, uh, 1914, 1922, and these were enormously important years in the Middle East with the redrawing of, of the territories after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and today. Um, how do these maps tell us about the catastrophe of these Christian communities, the, 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 the few that are left in Syria, in Iraq, in Gaza, and in Egypt? Well, I'm going to speak about after World War I, of course, when the, the, when the map of the Middle East was basically, when the Middle East was carved up and redrawn. Um, in the case of Iraq, it was redrawn by two British diplomats, Lawrence of Arabia and um, Gertrude Bell, who was a rather extraordinary woman, um, who I believe Nicole Kidman played her in a film. Um, didn't quite capture her, but, but anyway, she was an extraordinary, um, fiery woman who was an Arabist who rode throughout the Middle East on her horse alone, who mapped territory. Um, but basically what... What they didn't take into consideration, to be very broad, um, it's very similar to the former Yugoslavia, where I worked for many years during the war. You, If you create false countries out of a country, let's say Iraq, which was Sunni, Shia, Christian, and other minorities, and basically redraw something and put these people all together and assume, okay, they are going to, you know, they must live together. You're, you're not taking into account the, the history, the culture, um, even something about like how vastly different, um, for instance, um, most of the Christians live in the Nineveh, the Nineveh plain where in, in Iraq, um, where Jonah, you know, the prophet Jonah, Jonah and the whale um, wandered. And this putting them being in this region made them highly vulnerable to all kinds of attacks from from Turkey, um, from other groups that came that came across and tried to subjugate them. What is remarkable, um, and I really, really noticed this after 2014 when the Islamic State rolled in, and uh, yeah, that'll be on the, the modern map. The when modern map, which the Middle East has been completely uh, redrawn, or the maps of the Middle East have been completely redrawn. Right. Um, the Islamic State 2014, summer of 2014, um, come through, first take Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq, um, which completely took, I was in Baghdad at the time. I was, so I was, you know, a few hours south. And I was not as surprised because I had been working in Syria and saw the, the rise of, of the Islamic State um, and, you know, saw these foreign fighters coming. But, but, it seemed to really take a lot of intelligence, um, the CIA, the, the French intelligence, British intelligence, really weren't as, as clued in as they should have been um, because the Islamic State then rolled through and went through these towns in Nineveh, um, one by one by one, destroying churches, um, taking women away, in some cases to Raqqa, which is their, was their capital, um, burning down houses, taking farms, forcing people, giving them a choice of either converting, if they didn't kill them outright, um, gave them a choice of either converting, paying a large tax, or um, you know having to live under this domination of this Islamic state. So it was like something from the fourth century. Um, and the Christians who have 
for the past, I'd say, 30 years already been have already been blighted by um, economics and climate change. Um, their farmlands are really in desperate Particularly shape. in Syria, I think. Yeah, Syria and Iraq. I mean, terrible. I, you know, that, that, that region, which had been a breadbasket, suffering terrible droughts. Um, so their, their numbers were diminishing. You know, they, they and, and I know you're going to ask me how many people are there. And in, in the case of Iraq, it's really difficult because there hasn't been a census since the time of, since I think it's 40 years, um, there hasn't been a proper census. So no one really knows how many Christians are left there. But when the Islamic State finally fell, um, they slowly returned to their villages. Some did, some had already left. And there they found the churches, you know, in many cases raised to rubble, um, their crucifixes broken. Um, and I remember, you know, wandering through these places and just thinking, how is it that their faith is so stoic and so strong that they can, that they can keep going after? And this wasn't the first time. I mean, they have endured so many um, plagues, um, attempts to... Yeah, I took these photos for people watching as opposed to listening. There are some wonderful photos. I don't know if they're yours. Uh, some of them are from, from your, your Harper's article in uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, 2013 on this. And, and what strikes me in particular about the photos is that uh, it's a way of life that's being destroyed. You actually begin the book with a, a quote from Henri Cartier-Bresson. We photographers deal in things which are continually vanishing and when they have vanished there is no contrivance on earth which can make them come back again we cannot develop and print a memory and and those memories are things which are represented i think in your harper's article and of course above all else uh, in this wonderful book uh, the vanishing um your pin tweet um is uh, a picture of a crying young boy uh, janine um you, you note in the tweet that you've reported from Bosnia, Rwanda, Syria, many other places, and you're directing it, directing it to Antony Blinken, the current uh, U.S. Secretary of State. You say that this is a photo from Gaza, and this is what you describe as ethnic cleansing. Is that the ethnic cleansing of Christians from Gaza that you're talking about? Absolutely. I mean, I think now um, it was during the, the time of the Islamic State, they very clearly, they wanted to erase them from the face of the earth. They wanted to rid the their ancestral land, uh, the Christians' ancestral land of Christianity. Um, now, I would say there are other factors. There are other, you know, the Islamic State is not gone, despite majority Muslims, majority Sunni or Shiite Muslims who have no interest in the Islamic State, who have been living in these ancient places for hundreds of years. What is there? And I know it's hard to make a generalization, but in your experience, you've traveled a lot. You've talked to a lot of people in, in Syria, in Iraq, in Egypt, uh, in Palestine. Is there outrage among some Muslims about the destruction of, of, of this uh, these communities of antiquity? Of course, among some, right? Um, but remember that even before the Islamic State, these churches in in, in Baghdad in particular uh, were being blown up by uh, suicide bombers and by um, car bombs. And so, you know, I'm, I do not in any way want to imply that 
all Muslims in Iraq or all Muslims in Syria want to get rid of Christians because, again, for many, many years, say Syria, I write a lot about um, this extraordinary place called Malula, which is outside of Damascus, um, where there had been a monastery for, for centuries um, that, that has survived the war in Syria, survived the Islamic State. But I would say, you know, what people told me a lot in Gaza and in Egypt was um, they always felt, the Christians told me, they always felt like the other. And of course, in, in Egypt, it's a very different situation because the Copts, the Christians there who are ancient, ancient people as well, um, they are more, um, they don't have the same kind of, um, they are discriminated against and persecuted rather than I'd say actively hunted down. Um, and, and, you know, the attempts to eradicate them um, because they are more of a fabric um, in, in, they more are more poor, part of the fabric of Egyptian society. Although um, they, there are laws that, that, that prevent them from, from many things. There's Do you think certain- that the destruction or the disappearance of Jewish communities in, in Iraq, in Syria, in Egypt is a sort of a rather nasty dress rehearsal for what's now happening to the Christians? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the Iraqi Jewish community was hugely important, you know, and there's some some very important families that have come out of it. The, for instance, Sachi and Sachi, the Sachi brothers. And in the 1950s, they were basically um, persecuted and and condemned, and and so that most of them fled if if they weren't killed. Many, many, many of them were killed um, right before the invasion. Uh, in 2003, in the kind of final days of Saddam Hussein, with a colleague, we worked to kind of trace if there were any Jews left in Iraq. And my colleague that I was working with, Tim Judah, his family had come from, he was Jewish from Iraq, from Baghdad. Um, And I cannot tell you the terror when we finally found like this very tiny community. Um, And I mean, like under a dozen people left how frightened they were. And when you think about it, they had been such a thriving part of, of the culture. And the Christians, um, in, in, I mean, each, each chapter in each area that I studied, Syria, um, Gaza, Iraq, and, and Egypt, have different situations um, and, and different, different challenges. Um, I, I think probably the most endangered are, are the Iraqi Christians and the Syrian Christians as well. I did not include Lebanon. It's interesting because a lot of my Lebanese Christian yeah, friends, absolutely, yeah. and that would have that would have perhaps been a slightly different narrative. But of course, we can't blame um, a lot of them. I mean, as you say, in uh, 1914 and then in 1922, the map of the Middle East, the modern the modern map of the Middle East was. W- redrawn by uh, British aristocrats like Lawrence of Arabia and Gertrude Bell, by Guy Sikhs and Picot, French diplomats. Um, So we can't blame everything on the Americans, but in your tweet, you remind Blinken of his moral responsibilities. We've had many shows about the catastrophic consequences of the Iraqi war, including the excellent New York Times uh, journalist, I'm sure you know him, Robert Draper, to start a war. How much responsibility do the Americans have here? And in particular, not this current administration, but uh, Blinken as a representative of the Americans, given that 
the Americans have in, in some ways started this latest, most deadly cycle of persecution of Christians? Well, I do think you're right. We've got to go back in history, right? And it's interesting that you call them aristocrats and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, Lawrence of Arabia and Gertrude Bell came from a certain class. They were both Oxford educated. They, you know, and, and there, there was a certain arrogance to the diplomatic elite going to the Middle East and trying to redraw a map and, and not, if not depopulate people, but, but, you know, literally kind of put them within the confines of what they assumed was the best thing for them. So I think what we need to look at is the colonial past and the kind of the, the legacy of that that still lingers. Um, and Sykes-Picot have a lot, the, the British French um, diplomats who, you know, also had a large part in this, you know, we have to kind of look back and, and say, what could have been done differently? All right, we can, you know, it's hindsight is never a good thing in, in terms of conflict, but what you can do is have lessons learned and say, okay, we will not do the same thing in, well, it's too late for Afghanistan. Well, this is a bit late. Janine, um, the UN have these protected buildings and cities. Should international, credible international organizations like the UN, should they be regarding, say, the Christian communities, these Christian communities of antiquity in the Middle East, should they be regarding them in the same way as they regard churches? or monuments, or pieces of the environment? Absolutely. I mean, these are endangered people. There is an, an endangered, as I, I saw an article in the New York Times about a bird that's now endangered, and I thought, but Christian... Yeah, we did a number. Of, we did a couple of shows about that, actually, yesterday. And, yeah. You know, I mean, I these are people that are endangered. And when you think about it, I was, I was very fortunate to get a, a Guggenheim grant to help me with my research. And when I was presented with it, they said, this is an important document because you are recording the final days of people who might no longer exist. And if you have any interest in, in history, if you have any interest in religious history in particular, the Holy Land, the, the, the cradle of Christianity, if these people leave, then that that history, and it's why I write so much about memory. I mean, I'm very I'm I'm fascinated by by memory and by what we remember and the narratives of memory and the politics of memory. And so if we lose these people either to another wave of an extremist group that tries to wipe them out, and they they you know they did the Islamic State did a a pretty efficient job. Um I mean, people survived only because they got out very quickly with just the clothes on their backs, literally. And they went from village to village to village until they found safety in the Kurdish region. Um, and, you know, when I, I remember people camping under the, the statue of Our Lady um, in Ain Kawa, which is a, a suburb of Irbil in Kurdistan, northern Iraq. Um, so if we let these people disappear, I mean, we do have a moral responsibility. The same moral responsibility we had in the former Yugoslavia um, in Bosnia as the European Union and the international community watched ethnic cleansing in real time and did nothing. Or yeah, the, the interesting thing cleansing. about the former Yugoslavia is, of course, is in 1918, that map was also drawn by, not, not by uh, Lawrence of Arabia or Gertrude Bell, but by uh, Seton Watson and other kinds of English aristocrats. Um, 
Janine, you you write, of course, you're you're a French base, so you write in terms of COVID. Of you refer to Camus' The Plague, of course, La Peste, the great work on fighting the pandemic, both in symbolic and and actual terms. The the uh, Camus' Plague, of course, ends with. Uh, uh, an argument in favor of love. And you end the book as well about love. You say, nearly every Christian I interviewed for this book used the same word over and over in different languages to express why they continued to believe, despite, despite, despite. It is, they said, because of love. Tell me about this love. What does it mean? And, and, and how does that tie together with with the work of people like Camus, who who saw this uh, catastrophe in a slightly different kind of context? Well, the tenets of Christianity are faith, hope, and love. And, you know, one can be cynical about all of those and say, um, you know, how can one have faith in such dark times? But the people that I met, the love, the love, what they meant was their love for God. Um, that their their love for God, their faith, their determination to continue in the way they had for thousands of years was stronger. And I end the book like this, far stronger than any of the armies that tried to destroy them. And, you know, if you look back to the ancient, ancient Christians in, in the Roman times and the martyrs, I, as a little girl, when we would study this at school, I was always horrified that anyone could have such belief and such incredible faith that they would be willing to die. And in the case of you know, the martyrs, terrible, horrible, tortured death. Um, so what fascinated me and what made me write this book was what is it that drives these people? You know, what is it that allows them, n- none of them that I met in the aftermath of ISIS had given up their faith or were um, considering or even doubted God. And it's really, really extraordinary. I mean, even in their darkest moments, they might have pleaded or they might have prayed or they might have begged God. I mean, I remember just before the 2003 invasion and and I write about this, I went up to Mosul and went to mass in in St. Thomas the Apostle, um, it's extraordinary old church. And I, um, people were crying, so they were, they were frightened, even as far back as then, and this is long before the Islamic State, they they saw their way of life as disappearing. And when you think about it, living in democracies as I do and you do, Andrew, it's difficult to imagine what it would feel like if your faith was, um, was not allowed. You know, if you felt that the thing that was the most important the thing that your stalwart in your life, the thing that, that that holds you together is going to be threatened, that it's going to be taken from you, that you're going to have to pray in secret like Catholics in Japan in, in the 14th century, um, you know, that, that your your masses will be hidden, your confessions will be have to be heard in underground. This This terrorizes people. And yet, despite all of it, they still remain. Their numbers are dwindling, but they still remain. And that's why, in a sense, this book is, is a plea for exactly what you're saying, you know, a way of protecting these people, um, a way of acknowledging their human rights, 
and making sure that absolutely they are um, they are not allowed to fade away to become a memory. Very briefly, Janine, how would you respond to someone watching this perhaps who would say, well, this is all very well and of course it's tragic, but many of these Christian communities came out of violence, came out of one kind of colonialization or another, the Greeks, the Romans, the Crusaders, um, that violence begets violence. I, I don't, you know, I think that'd be a bit unfair because we... I mean, while we can absolutely take um, take acknowledge what our ancestors have done, um, these are people who are there right now, you know, and 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 looking at a very unstable future. So their own, you know, were their ancestors violent? I think they themselves um, have always been the, if not victims. I don't like the word victim, um, but the fragile ones, the ones in need of protection. Um, in 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 the cases that I'm talking about, you know, Christians, and, and the Crusades, for instance. I'm not talking about that. I mean, I'm just talking about these very small endangered communities in Iraq, in Syria, in Gaza, and in Egypt. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's really important. It's a beautifully written book. I can't resist asking you this. I of course don't want to pigeonhole you while I am pigeonholing you, Janine. <laughs> Okay, go we ahead. A very distinguished CNN, another equally brave woman, Clarissa Ward, on the show. She's written a book about her experiences in the Middle East. I'm sure you know her. Mm -hmm. She's the yeah, CNN's she's correspondent there. You're another woman who's risked their life for 30 years reporting on these catastrophic conflicts, particularly in the Middle East and in the Balkans. Mm -hmm. um, is there something about being a woman that brings particular insight, sympathy? To this narrative good question you know um well i would say definitely um for i can only speak for myself i can't speak for every other female reporter but i think when i first of all when i started um way back in you know 1990 there were there were far fewer women very very few women actually that the ones there were there were tv reporters because you know tv is quite sexist and it likes having pretty women on tv but print um by by and large there were very few especially in the middle east which is you know considered like a macho was considered a sort of macho male swaggering foreign correspondent type thing drinking they're whiskey. Robert, they're robert fisk syndrome right? exactly yeah yeah exactly um and so you know i i felt like i i had to sit back i had to watch i had a lot to learn i was very green and but being a woman definitely first of all i find that it's easier for people to open up whether or not that is because they think I'm their now mother or sister or girlfriend or, you know, a nurse or something like a feminine force. I, I think that women can be better listeners and in some way good at multitasking. And if you're working in a war zone, you really need to be able to multitask. Um, finally, I think um, once I had a child, uh, my son is 17, I, I could, in my empathy for families struggling to get away, to run away, who are being ethnically cleansed, who have lost members of their family, who are suffering from disease and don't have, is, it was so much more stark because I could, I could see myself in that situation. And that is why the initial months of COVID were so terrifying for me because I've seen firsthand 
societies break down in a matter of hours. And everyone always says, war isn't coming here. And they never leave until it's too late. Every single refugee I've talked to, and I, I've worked with refugees for 35 years, I worked for the UN Refugee Agency. So I spent a lot of time with displaced people. And I always say to them, you know, what was the moment when you decided to leave? And it's really interesting because in some cases, like let's say the siege of Sarajevo or Kabul, you know, why did people wait? Like when they knew the Taliban was coming, why didn't they go? The thing is, no one ever believes that the war is really going to come until it's literally on their doorstep. So I saw COVID coming and I, you know, I've always had this thing from working in war zones where I hoard water and medical supplies and necessary things because I've lived in cities under siege where you cannot get water and you can't get paracetamol and you can't get ibuprofen um, or antibiotics. So, you know, call it a neurosis, I'm sure it is, but I, I've seen these things happen. And I, COVID, I'll tell you, at the very beginning, it, it wasn't death that scared me. It was the breakdown of society. I thought that there would be um, fighting in the streets, people fighting to get masks, people fighting to get food, people fighting to get money out of their machines, uh, the, the bank machines, because that's the first thing that goes. You right. go and I think, well, maybe the first thing that goes, uh, Janine, is memory. In your book, The Vanishing, uh, Faith, Loss, and the Twilight of Christianity in the Land of the Prophets, is a book above all else about memory, about memorializing a com communities that may not exist um, in the not-too-distant future. It's a wonderful read. Congratulations on the book, a very moving book, both from a personal point of view about your own life, your child, you begin with your child, you end with your child, you talk about your family, and you knit it in beautifully to what's happening in the Middle East. Um, so the, the book's just out, everyone needs to read it. What else? Uh, you're in your, uh, your, your home in Manhattan, uh, Janine, what else should people be reading in these strange okay. times where we need to remember stuff? Okay, so the first thing I'm going to pull out is a really, a child, a book I read as a child called The Endless Step. And it, it's, it's from June. Is it right? I've never heard of it. Oh, it's extraordinary. It's about a young woman. Um, in June 1941, this family was arrested by Russians, accused of being capitalists, enemies of the people, forced from their homes and friends in Vilna, Poland. They are herded into a crowded cattle car, their destination the Endless Step of Siberia. And it's about how this young woman comes of age. It's a true story. It is, and I, I think I'm sure it's marked me to do what I do now because I read it, I must've been 11 or 12. Yeah, and, it's interesting that uh, last week I was in Kazakhstan oh. and I visited in uh, Nur Sultan and I visited uh, a, a recreated gulag on the outside, on the outskirts of Nur Sultan where some of these people were taken. And it's extremely, uh, women and children, no men. So uh, particularly moving. So that's a good book. And what else, Janine? Okay, so this is a bit grim, but I'm afraid I am reading the, the ultimate biography of Sylvia Plath called Red Comet. It's massive. And it's taken me about four months to read, mainly because it's just so damn Which is miserable she seems. Yeah, she pretty much was. And also she doesn't, the, the thing about this biography, it does not paint her as 
a nice person. You know, you you kind of you don't like her. You you feel for her, and particularly at the end. But I have to say, I came away feeling more for Ted Hughes, um, because in a way, even her suicide, and of course. Sylvia Plath has been immortalized as this, you know, brilliant American college girl who goes to England, um, tries to conquer England, marries Britain's most brilliant poet, Ted Hughes, um, who, who then leaves her for another woman and she kills herself. And even her act of killing herself, knowing she will destroy Ted Hughes for the rest of his life, which of course she, she, she did. I mean, his reputation and, but it's, if I would say that book is really for those who love poetry because it goes into great depths analyzing her poetry, which is is brilliant. But it's also a good example of how to write a biography. Well, another book about memory and loss, but this book, The Vanishing, uh, Faith, Loss, and the Twilight of Christianity in the Land of the Prophets, I think is a must read for anyone who cares about the Middle East, its historical, its complicated historical legacy. Uh, Janine uh, Di Giovanni, congratulations on the book. Keep Thank well, you. keep remembering, and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, everyone.